chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. And no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, You are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, Lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked, because I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock 
and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them with the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never, never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. This is God's word. Well, please keep that open before you. Uh, Two weeks ago, there was a BBC Scotland documentary. I'm not sure whether you saw it. It was called Church in Crisis. And it was looking at the origin and the current state of health of the Church of Scotland. And the statistics were quite um, dramatic. Currently, in the Church of Scotland, a third of the congregations are supporting the remaining two-thirds because they're struggling to pay their own bills. The Church of Scotland is millions of pounds in debt this year, and they're really relying on financial reserves. And the statistics in many of the historic denominations are also sort of following this trend. But behind the cold statistics of numbers, the New Testament warns us of a deeper spiritual crisis that can go unnoticed for a long time. And that is this, that God is no longer present See, the massive irony is that this can be true of a church where there are lots of people turning up. And people think of it as a successful church. It's quite possible that people uh, carry on with religious activities without noticing that God has actually left the building. In an an active, busy church, the possibility for self-delusion is all too possible. And we know this because Jesus wrote letters to the churches in Asia Minor uh, through the Apostle John. And in the book of Revelation, at the start of that book, we have a series of letters from Jesus. 
and he writes to one church, the church at Laodicea. They thought of themselves as a great church. They thought very highly of themselves. Uh, they said, uh, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But Jesus in his letter to them gives a very different assessment, doesn't he? He says, um, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, the view that they had of themselves in Laodicea with their full church and everything going on was quite delusional. The truth about the church in Laodicea was that while they were having their meetings, Jesus was not even present. In fact, these Christians are so lukewarm, they just hadn't noticed and hadn't even heard the fact that Jesus was knocking on the door to the church and saying, can I come in? Will you let me in? He's waiting for the invitation. He's more than willing to come and a fellowship with them, to, to eat a meal of, of covenant fellowship with these people, but they, they're too busy to notice that he's not even there. See, what is the one thing we need as a church uh, at a time when we hear stories of decline? We need God. We need God. What do we need in our lives? We need God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. And that was something that the Israelites were starting to sober up to in uh, the chapters uh, that we've just read in chapter 33. While Moses had gone away, uh, we've been studying and uh, receiving the Ten Commandments. What had they been doing at the bottom of the mountain? They'd been busy breaking those very same commandments. They'd heard them from God himself. Moses goes up the mountain and... For a month out, there they are, breaking the first two commandments. And we considered that last week. So while Moses is hearing all the wonderful uh, ways, the uh, descriptions of the tabernacle, this tent that God was going to dwell in and be amongst them as his people as they traveled to the promised land, they were busy basically having a pagan worship festival around a golden cow. And we've been considering some of the repercussions of that terrible moment of apostasy but you'll see it there in, in, in chapter 33 and verse 3 here's one of the final terrible repercussions of their sinful rebellion uh, chapter 33 verse 3 go up to a land flowing with milk and honey but I will not go with you God says this is quite amazing really God's going to deliver on his promise he made a promise to Abraham centuries before uh, they would give them the land, and God's going to deliver on that. They're going to get this beautiful, rich, abundant land. But God's not going to go with them. And the simple reason for this is because God's presence was dangerous to them. I want us to consider the dangerous presence of God here in the first six verses. Look at verse 3. I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. A stiff-necked people. It's the image, I guess, of a, of a farmyard animal that refuses to take the yoke of its master to sort of pull a plow and furrow a field or whatever the, 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 the farmer wants. Well, they're a stiff-necked people. They refuse to work for their master. And this is what God is saying of them. Look at verse 5. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. And so God says, you know, I'll give you the land, but 
I can't go with you. It's dangerous for you if I go with you. Now, why is that? Because they're a sinful people. Now, he's a holy God. Their sinfulness was like gunpowder to the fire of God's holiness. You just can't put those two things together. The kids were just joking on the, on the way, and wouldn't it be hilarious if someone went up to the castle right now with a big fire, and all the fireworks went up right now? And I suggest it would be much more exciting to watch it you know, in progression rather than one big bang. But this is what God's saying. His holiness is like gunpowder to, the, uh, to, to fire, and, 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 and their sin is like gunpowder, and, and the two just couldn't go together. Not for a moment. Consider the awesome holiness of God. Have you thought about God in this way? Do you realize that the God we're talking about, the God of the universe, is a holy God? He's separate and different to us. Not for a moment could God go with them in their sinful, rebellious ways. Not for a moment. It's a dangerous thing to go with a holy God. And it's even Moses, who stands in a unique relationship with God, as we're going to find out here, uh, even Moses cannot be allowed to see the full glory of God. He, he can't see the full explosion of the, of, the, of the glory and the holiness of God because God says, you know, no one can see my face and live. There's no way that we as puny little human beings can look into the fullness of who God is and survive. Such is the danger, the dangerous presence of a holy God. Now I think our danger as people who live into the, uh, the goodness of, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus is that we can treat drawing near to God as if it's just uh, a small and insignificant thing. Well clearly from the book of Exodus it is not. We can rush into our prayers, uh, hurry into our meetings with so little thought of the awesome majesty and of the holiness of God who calls us to meet with Him. And I think these chapters serve us in that way of reminding us of that. See, remember, even Aaron underestimated the holiness of God, didn't he? It was Aaron who uh, quite quickly came up with the idea, oh, give me your earrings and I'll give you a golden calf. This moment of of this idolatry was a terrible moment of sin and rebellion causing God to even threaten to wipe them out their sin has put everything on hold it threatens their relationship with God and here we are in the balance what's going to happen now and I want to say even as God's people if we are following our sinful desires unrepentantly then we should not be surprised that God feels distant to us We shouldn't be surprised that our Christian lives lack joy and vitality. God's presence will not go with us when we push him aside, when we uh, lock him out of our lives through uh, persistent disobedience. But the encouraging thing to see in this chapter, here we are in the Old Testament, is just to see evidences of God's grace even here. Evidence number one, that people are starting to wake up to the seriousness of this. Look at verse 4. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. Now this is a great evidence of grace. When God's people start waking up to the holiness of God and the seriousness of their sin, and they begin to mourn over their sinfulness. 
Oh, my friends, this is a great sign of grace. This is not something that we see naturally of ourselves. Uh, naturally, uh, we think, hey, I'm good enough for God. I can do whatever I want. I can be whoever I want. I can say what I want. It doesn't matter. Well, it is grace that makes you realize your sin. It is grace that humbles man and begins to make him mourn for his sinfulness and for the way that's destroying a relationship with a holy God. The other aspect of hope in this chapter is that there's still one person who's in relationship, and that's Moses. To see the uh, uh, unrelenting intercession of this man Moses. While the people are estranged from God, Moses is not. And so Moses symbolically shows this by setting up a, a tent of meeting. It's not the tabernacle that's been described. It's just like a tent. And he sets it up way outside the camp. And it's symbolic, isn't it? It's saying, okay, God, God, God can't dwell amongst you, but there is a man that he will talk with, and he's out of the tent. And when Moses goes out, the people stood their tent. They, they, they see what an awesome thing it is. There's at least one person who can relate to this holy God. And they worship as he heads into the tent, and they see the pillar of cloud coming on that tent. So there's hope. These are great signs of repentance and a great hope that there's a mediator who's a still a friend of God who's still interceding for this people. Now, there, there, there is hope for sinners if there's such a person. And what's the content of these discussions? Well, after they get in the description of the, of the tent of meeting, we're allowed, as it were, into the tent. It's as if we can uh, have a fly on the wall. We're listening in. This is what they're talking about. This is what God is talking about with Moses. Face to face. And Moses does not give up pleading and interceding for the people before God. Because although Moses knows that, that, that God's presence is dangerous, he also knows that God's presence is indispensable. That's my second point. If you look at verse 7 to 17, to see the indispensable presence of God. God had promised the land. He's going to deliver on that. But that's not enough for Moses, is it? Look at verse 15. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I mean, God is offering a great thing, isn't he? An abundant, fruitful land. Uh, When we lived in America, we owned five acres. It was really nice. It was kind of great. Had a bit of land. Went around doing Adamic, manly things. Caring for the land. Chopping down trees and caring for the land. It's a great thing to be given land. And God's given them a whole land. Moses says, that's not enough. Unless your presence goes with us, God, there's no point in us going. He knows the gifts of God mean nothing without the giver. God's presence is just indispensable to Moses. And I wonder, what about us? I wonder if you got every wish that you wanted, if it all came for you, if you, if you got perfect health and say you could run a marathon or something, if you got all the money you needed, enough money to pay off your mortgage on your big house, if you had a satisfying career, 
wasn't too demanding, everyone thought you were great. If your marriage was really strong, your children growing and healthy, if you had the good life, would that be enough? You're thinking, ah, that's the dream, that's what I want. If you had that, would that be enough? For Moses, he's saying, that's not enough. If your presence will not go with us, don't send us. Look at verse 12. He begins reminding God of his own words. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and you found favor with me. So Moses bases his prayer on God's past words. This is a great lessons in prayer. Lessons in prayer here. Quote God's words back to him. He's a God who's faithful to his word. He keeps his promises. What he has said remains to be true because he's a faithful God. And so Moses, God has said this to Moses in some interaction. And Moses repeats these words back to God. And it is the basis of his appeal. And he asks for two things in this section. He asks for two things. Verse 13, he asks this. Teach me your ways. And verse 18, show me your glory. Teach me your ways and show me your glory. So first one, verse 13, teach me your ways. Teach me your ways so that I, I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Now what's he asking here? It's a weak analogy, but uh, just think about marriage. Uh, when you get married... Uh, well, the first thing that happens when you get married is you realize you never really fully understood your partner and they're scratching their heads and saying, I never fully understood you. You know, you spent all this wonderful time and now suddenly you're spending more time you've ever spent together and you go, whoa, there's so much more to know. Some smiles. And a good relationship is about learning each other's ways, isn't it? learning each other's habits, learning what people like and dislike. It's about getting to know each other personally and deeply. And the wise person listens attentively and learns to relate to the person on the basis of what they like and don't like. Only then will they be able to please the other person, do the things that find favor. And that's normal in any relationship, isn't it? I have learnt, uh, young men, a bit of housework, some flowers occasionally, does the trick. <laughs> Goes a long way. Goes a long way. For my wife, anyway. It may be different for your own. And this is what Moses wants to, is asking here. He wants to know God. He wants to know God so that he can please God. And he wants to continue to enjoy God's wonderful presence. That's what he's asking here when he says, teach me your ways. I want to know you, God. Think about the psalmist. Psalm 25 says this, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. And at the end of verse 13, he also has the temerity to remind God of an important fact. Remember that this nation is your people. Oh, Lord, I found favor in your eyes. Teach me your ways. And remember, Lord, these are your people. Verse 14 is encouraging. My presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. 
but perhaps it's a little too ambiguous for Moses. In the original language, you can't see it really in the English, but the word you there is singular. God says, yes, I'll go with you, Moses. I'll give you, Moses, rest. And Moses is taking no chances that it's just about him. Verse 15, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? See Moses' heart here, God's presence is indispensable because without God, his people are indistinguishable from the rest of the nations. There's nothing different about Christians, really, is there, from everyone else apart from this, that they know the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the person, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual that, that makes them any different at all. And without God, we are indistinguishable from anybody else. When God's presence is little sought or required amongst his church, it's not so much surprise, is it, when, when the church basically just looks like the world, when the church just mirrors the rest of the world. That's what happens when you lose the presence of God. When Christians look exactly like everyone else, whatever faith or religion or creed, then it's a sure sign that we are missing the presence of God. And what's underlying Moses' request here? It is just a burning passion for God's glory in the world. He desires that God in his glory and goodness would be known in all the world and would be known through a distinctive people. That's his heart. That's what he longs for. And look at this great verse of encouragement, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked, because I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name. Think about that verse. Because I'm pleased with you, and know you by name. That's the reason why God's going to do what he's asked, that God will go with him. What's the Lord saying here? When he says, I know you by name, what does God mean? Like, did God... Is, I mean, I, I, I have a terrible job remembering names. It's, it's killing me to stand at the door at the end of church because some people's names I've got, some people's names I still haven't got, and it could take another 10 years for me because I've got a very small brain. Is it that God is like that, that he's forgotten Moses' name and has to say, oh yeah, but I remember you. What's the significance of the name? Well, we live in a less formal time, but even in our day, uh, we have a queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth, but I really don't know who gets the right to call her Elizabeth. I presume her husband, maybe. Maybe some close friends. But if you were to meet the queen, you couldn't just say, Elizabeth, I've been waiting to meet you. My name's Paul, hello. <laughs> you couldn't do that, could you? Your majesty. Right? But if the queen says, call me Elizabeth, 
but what's that saying? Well, that's saying that you've entered into a friendship, an intimacy, a closeness that very few have. And this is the awesome thing that God is saying here. I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name, Moses. There's an intimacy, a relationship, a depth. He appears to be the only faithful Israelite left. He is this unique mediator between the people and God. We can take encouragement from this verse, not because we are in any way like Moses. No, actually, if we're in this story, where are we? We're amongst the stiff-necked people, are we not? We need a mediator. We, we need somebody like Moses. And so it's so wonderful as you read the gospel accounts and you hear uh, the voice from heaven as Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism and God says this, uh, this is my son. God knows the name of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. This is my son with whom I am not just pleased. Pleased with Moses. Jesus, well pleased. With him, I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And my friends, you see, this is our hope. This is why verse 17 is an encouragement. If we are people who put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, if we are relying upon this mediator, if we come before this God in the name of this mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, then that divine statement of God's pleasure and his love for the Son is the very basis by which we find favor and come under the pleasure of this God. And so it is an incredible thing that God knows us by name. In fact, as we read on in the New Testament, we see this extraordinary thing, this language of foreknowledge. Does it mean that God can look into the future and see what happens? Well, yes, of course, God can do that. But actually, that's not what the the phrase means. The phrase means this, that before God created anything, he chose those that he would enter into an intimate relationship with. That that he chose that there were people who in Christ, God would choose to relate to in love and grace and mercy and loving kindness. And and this is is our hope, this is our joy, (laughs) that we are in Christ. And so we read verse 17 and read it as a great encouragement to us as Christians. It is because Jesus died in our place upon the cross as we're going to come to the table of communion to think about. It's because he, the perfect one, died in the place of guilty sinners, that he made atonement for our sins, that that we are made right with God. It is because, as it says in the book of Hebrews, uh, that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I will do this very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name, God says. Wonderfully, Moses gets his prayer answered. They're going to get the land and God says, actually, 
I will go with you. You will have my presence. But even this is not enough. This is what I find amazing. Wow, you've got the land. You've got God going not just with you, but with the whole people. But Moses hadn't stopped interceding. This is what he says. Verse 18, now show me your glory. Moses longs to experience more of the glorious presence of God. Uh, glory is a very tricky word to pin down. There's actually uh, someone here doing a doctoral thesis on all the uh, various words for the word glory. It's a bit intimidating to preach when you've got someone spending three or four years on that very topic. And I tried to ask them to summarize it for me. They were, they were struggling at the beginning of their thesis. So here's my working definition of what glory is. Glory is the splendor and radiance of God. Glory is about the weightiness of divine being. It is the essence of the glory of God. And Moses says, please show me more of your greatness, more, more of your value, more of your worth. Uh, it's as if he says, I, I don't want to just know how to live to please you. I want to know you. See, it's a different thing, isn't it, to, to want to please your spouse and get by in a happy, harmonious way. It's another thing to sit down and say, tell me about you. Let me know you. Moses, and Moses, this is what he asks. Show me your glory. And from God's reply in verse 33, God's glory is in some way parallel to his goodness. As if God says, well, Moses, you can't bear to see all my glory. But I tell you what, I'll, I'll allow some of my glory to pass by. I'll allow my goodness to pass by. Um, there's a place there's a, there's a rock I'll put you in that place and I'll put my hand over you to shield the full sort of enormity of even seeing God's goodness pass by and after my goodness has passed by I'll, I'll pull back my hand and you, and you will see the afterglow of the goodness of God and it's quite clear as you read this in verse th chapter 34, it's not just pyrotechnics. We're going to see great pyrotechnics tonight. But what's going on here is more than just pyrotechnics. God gives him something better than just a momentary glimpse of glory. He hears a revelation of God's name and character. God's glory is going to be experienced as much through Moses' ears as through his eyes. Look at uh, chapter 34 and verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Do you want to know God? Stephen Hawkins just said this week that uh, God doesn't exist. That uh, the laws of gravity are quite enough to explain how the whole cosmos could come out of nothing. Which even a primary school children is scratching his head to comprehend how Nothing can have a law of gravity and stuff and suddenly spontaneously produce 
Do you want to know God? God? God is speaking right here. Do you know what God is like? Look at these words. These, these have been written down for us so that you and I can know this living God. Meditate on, on these verses. Let's, let's say them together, shall we? Have you got them open for you? Just say these words slowly together. And just think about each statement. The Lord. Together. One, two, three. The Lord. The Lord. The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Well, say it again. I think about each word. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. One last time. Just think about the Lord Jesus as we say it this time. As a description of Jesus. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. My friends, we would do well this week to uh, start each day with these words and prayerfully meditate on what it says to us. That the Lord is the compassionate and gracious God. Is this not music to our ears in the light of Israel's sin, in the light of our sin? This, this is the character of the God we worship, who is a compassionate and gracious God. Isn't that incredible? Slow to anger. He's not like a tired parent at the end of the day, bawling at his kids. He's long-suffering long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You don't have to squeeze love out of God. God is not cool and cold and heartless. No, He is abounding in love. Isn't that amazing? The God who is there is abounding in love. What's your picture of God? What do you think of when you consider God? He's abounding in love. He never stops pouring out his covenant faithfulness to his people that he's committed to. It says, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. Iniquities, in a sense, when we, when we, 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 we turn away from the, wrong, uh, the right and do the wrong. Um, transgression or, or rebellion... It's a sense of, of, of breaking against the authority of God. And sin is this kind of catch-all description of all sorts of wrongdoing and sin. And it's as if he's categorizing all the various options of ways that we can sin and break fellowship with God, uh, all the ways that we can go wrong, and say, well, what happens if I'm like that? Well, we have a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The whole thing. Now, this is the only basis that God can continue with his people. It's, it's on his character. And yet, as it goes on, he doesn't shove sin under the carpet. As it goes on, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And here we have 
what appears to be a tension as I read it, an apparent tension. How can God be a forgiving God and still hold the guilty accountable? Now Moses didn't have the answer. But we see the answer in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in his own son, the guilty were punished. Jesus swapped places with the guilty and the guilty were punished. And the awesome, abounding, steadfast love of God was revealed in the death of his own son upon the cross. So at the same time, God is both just and the one who justifies the ungodly. That's how this apparent tension is resolved in the, in the personal work of the Lord Jesus. What an awesome God. He doesn't know how God can do all of this, but he trusts God's revelation. He believes his word, and he quickly bows down and worships God. This, this is the right response to this God, isn't it? He deserves our worship and our praise and our adoration. What a, I mean, I suppose God could have been any sort of God, the God who created everything. He could be a, a, a totally different sort of God. And what an awesome thing to have this God as the living God, the God of mercy and grace. What a privilege to call this God your God. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Everything was in the balance, and yet Moses comes as an interceder on the basis of the character of God. God goes with them. He answers each of the requests. His presence will go with them. He will show them his ways. He reveals his glory. They would see God do great and awesome things as they head into the promised land. We see great and awesome things in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we, as we read the Gospels. And, and, and the question really today is, why do we mess around with worthless idols when we can worship a God who alone can do awesome things in and through our lives? Well, let's just reflect on the impact on Moses. But the extraordinary thing as you see this is that as you encounter a glorious God, as you worship him, as he desires and enables, then you're not left unchanged. And we've got this extraordinary uh, description of Moses returning down the mountain uh, with the new tablets of the Ten Commandments, and his face is shining with the reflected glory of God. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights with God. And, and bear in mind, he didn't even see the fullness of God's glory. He just saw the sort of the back sort of... Uh, afterglow of God's presence going by and yet despite seeing that he comes down and his face is shining to the degree that uh, even his brother is freaked out and doesn't want to get close to him and he has to put a veil over his face do you know Moses didn't actually see the full glory of God that day and look at the impact on him so consider with me how glorious is the new covenant blessing because there was a day when Moses got to see the full glory of God. Do you remember uh, the account as Jesus uh, went with a few disciples up the mountain and before their very eyes it says he was transfigured. His likeness was transformed into an incredible brightness, brighter than the sun. And it says standing with him, beside him were Moses and Elijah. Moses got his answer there. 
he got to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it is our privilege to have the New Testament uh, that dwells on the person and the character of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do, do we want to know more of God's presence in our, in our church here at Charlotte? Do, do we want to know more of God's presence in, in our lives? Do we want to know His ways? Do we want to see His glory? Well, we need God's Word. We have it. We have the opportunity to proclaim His name and His character. We need God's Spirit, putting a hunger and desire into our hearts after the triune God. And His Word and His Spirit are what we need to see Christ more clearly and be gradually changed to become more like our glorious Christ. We have that opportunity. It's here. We can grab it every day before we start the day. At the end of the day, we can grab it as we have opportunity to fellowship with other Christians in small groups. We can grab it as we come um, to church Sunday by Sunday. Do we come with that expectancy? With that hunger? truth is that quite often we get distracted, don't we? And yet God's word would call us back today. The passion of Moses, I think, is inspiring, is it not? That we can come to his word and come to his people with, with his prayer. Lord, show me your ways. Show me your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So gracious God, we ask that these would not just be words on a page but living words of life. Do this for us, we ask, as a church in our lives. Lord, reveal more to us of your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we are indistinguishable without your presence. And we long, Lord, to reflect more and more of your glorious character and your glorious love and purposes in this world. Oh Lord, do this work, we ask, in Christ's precious name.